Well, I have to say, it's so lovely now things are opening up again for the country and things are looking up and the spring is beautiful and the summer's coming. So we've got lots to look forward to. I hope everyone out there is well. And I'm very excited today because I'm going to meet somebody, albeit virtually, on my podcast that I'm a huge, massive fan of. She's a, an author. I'm a huge fan of all her books and especially the Seven Sisters series, which you must get if you haven't read them. And her name is Lucinda Riley. Hello, Lucinda. How are you? I am very well, Twiggy, on this bright spring morning and uh, just really, really excited to be speaking to you because you really want are one of my heroines I have to say so it's always one of those moments where you're like oh my god you know I'm speaking to Twiggy and it's all quite sort of overwhelming <laughs> but um anyway thank you so much for having me oh well I promise you I'm not I'm not very frightening but I have to say I am probably one of your biggest fans and oh. I have to tell our listeners that I we've never met have we no we haven't and I contacted you through the various people you have to contact um, to see if you'd come on my podcast. And I was just bowled over when you said yes, because I, I love your book so much. And um, oh. I, f- I felt kind of in my heart that we were destined to meet at some point because I love your book so much. So thank you for coming on my podcast. And have you got a cup of tea? I do, actually. Um, I have a cup of builder's tea. I'm afraid I'm a builder's girl. I just, you know, I just, wherever I go in the world, I'm afraid I have to take either my Irish tea bags or my British tea bags with me. I'm just, I'm basically, yeah, I just like my builder's tea. Strong. And do you have it with milk and sugar? or I have it I, with milk I'm and I'm just honey. the worst. I have it with uh, everything you can pour into it. Um, <laughs> and No, I mean, not non-alcoholic, obviously, although I have thought of that at some point uh, in my life. But um, no, I have, <laughs> I have sugar and I have lots of milk and uh, I have a really strong builder's brew. Good girl, good girl. I don't know I, what that says about me. I, I have that in the, in the morning, but I've, I've got a lemon and ginger at the moment. Yeah, it's just not on my street. It just really isn't. <laughs> so it's interesting you said Irish tea because you are Irish born, correct? Yeah. Yes, I am. And I lived there for the first uh, five, six years of my life. Mm-hmm. And then my parents came back to the UK. And um, then when I, I mean, obviously, I was on the boat the whole time going backwards and forwards to see all their friends, etc, etc. So it, it doesn't ever feel as though I left because summers were spent there. Where about, whereabouts in Ireland? Uh, well, I was actually born in Lisbon, which mm-hmm. is in Antrim. So, so it's Northern Ireland. And uh, my father worked between both Belfast and Dublin. And then in obviously the, the 60s and going into the 70s, things became very, very difficult over in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so he came back, he brought us back to England, even though we still went back every summer you know all my summers were sort of spent freezing to death on <laughs> Irish beaches um <laughs> it always sounds great you know the whole windswept thing but um yeah I just I just remember a lot of you know sand going into my Marmite sandwiches um <laughs> but uh but yes anyway and then when I was in my uh when I in fact I was 29 And myself and my husband decided that we would make the big move and go back to Ireland and settle there. So we went in, gosh, it's quite a long time ago. I always know by the age of my kids. So, yeah, it was about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we settled down in West Cork, which is as far sort of south as you can get. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And um, I had babies there. And, you know, I think... That always sort of keeps you close to an area, you know, when you're you're having babies with friends, it, it sort of bonds you somehow. 
And so, yes, we lived there for about seven years. This is when you were an actress, yeah? Or had you started writing? No, I'd started writing by that point. So, yes, so I was a writer as a novelist at that point. So it was very easy for me. And my husband was an actor Uh as well. So, uh, yeah, we could live anywhere. And uh, then we came back basically because I was struggling with the kids with no parental help. You know, I didn't have granny, grandpa there. And I think, you know, when you've got young kids and I had, you know, two uh, with two and a half years between them at that point, I, I did end up having having more after that. But yes, yeah, so we decided to come back. And then about eight years ago, I wanted to, if you like, go home because that's where I feel my roots are. Mm-hmm. If, the, if, you know, it, we're all so rootless these days coming from everywhere and anywhere, but you know, that is, if you like, where I want my ashes to be thrown off, you know, the highest cliff I can find. So (laughs) I think that says a lot. And so now what happens is that, funnily enough, my second husband is uh, called Riley. It's my second name. And uh, he is about as British. You know, if he was a stick of rock, he would have you know the UK sort of all the way through him uh, but he has he has an Irish surname which is uh, so obviously in 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 Ireland he's always called O'Reilly and so yes so we have this sort of you know uh, dual life if you like which was fine before lockdown because you could just get on the plane it was 40 minutes uh, and it's obviously been a lot harder well, I, you know, when you were saying about not having your, your mum and dad around to help you when your kids were like younger, that's what I've found hard through the lockdown because my daughter has got two little ones under five. And, of course, the last year, you know, I, you know, the plan was when her little Theo was born a year ago that I would, you know, when I wasn't working, I, I'd be there like a shot. Because babies are hard work, aren't they? <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. I mean, I do remember uh, we had uh, Stephen, my my husband, and I had one day where we had come. Um, we had a weekend in Norfolk, and we had, I think, at the time, four under seven, and oh. we had two friends of the two eldest with us for the weekend overnight on the Saturday. And I remember on the Sunday, Stephen and I just literally sitting on the floor with these, you know, one baby screaming, one toddler toddling, you know, with God knows what in, you know, in her mouth. And, uh, you know, and then the, the boys and girls, you know, the older ones just sort of racing around, you know, and just both of us putting my head in our hands um, because it is. I mean, oh my God, it's it's the best time of my life. When I look back on my life, it was when I was definitely the happiest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I had some, I took some time out and I was a full-time mum and I absolutely loved it. But yeah, I mean, you know, kids are hard work. And, I say uh, it's, a, it's a full-time job. You know, when people say, oh, she's just a mum. You think, well, hold on. <laughs> I could, I mean, I only ever had one child. I've got a stepson as well When I'm, after I met Lee, but I only ever had one. And I can remember when I was pregnant with Carly thinking, oh, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to, I knew I was going to take six months a year off work. And I thought, I'll have so much time to do so many <laughs> things. <laughs> Forget yeah. it. I mean, no. you know, when no, they're well, babies, it's, it's 24-7. It is. And it's one of my bugbears, actually, because, you know, I think especially with, you know, writing the the Seven Sisters stories, you know, the way that women are um, defined and uh, Mm. this whole idea that a woman who, you know, is able, is lucky enough to stay at home because, you know, lots of mums like me at the time when my kids were younger, I could stay at home, but I was working um, or trying to work. Can you imagine trying to write a novel with, you know, the kids all racing around you? Um, But I think it's always this this thing of, you know, that stay-at-home mums are somehow sort of secondary to someone who is going to break the glass ceiling and run an empire. I agree. And it's not right. You know, I mean, both of them are equally important 
jobs. Um, and they, you know, when I say jobs, one is obviously from the heart. But having said that, it is a job as well, bringing up a lot of kids or, or one. Absolutely. And I, do, I don't like this sort of um, idea that if you are deciding to stay at home and be a mum, you are somehow secondary to someone who is out at work. No, I, I, I'm with you 100%. Having, having, you know, had one child, but um, seeing my daughter with two little ones and me not being able to help, and especially when she was homeschooling the five-year-old and, you know, <laughs> and then she's I mean, got friends was... who've got three and four kids who were trying to do, and it's really tough. Yeah, I th- I and mean, usually I lack of sleep as well, you know. Yeah, well, that's what was sleep. And I, I think that's the other reason why... You know, I am so glad that I had my kids young, actually, um, because you need the energy. And uh, I'm, I'm also glad because obviously the kids have grown up with me at the same time. Yeah, and exactly. so I'm not a sort of different generation to them. I mean, I am, but I'm I'm still in touch, if you like, with, you know, who yeah, they are. and. On. Yeah, yeah, the absolutely. lives they live. So, um, which is I know very unfashionable, um, but I'm just I just keep telling my two girls, you know, get on and have some babies. I want some <laughs> grandchildren. Uh, Christmas isn't the same without them. It just isn't. <laughs> That's true. Now, your mum was an actress, correct? She was. Yeah. Tell me about her. And is that? I mean, is that why you? wanted to go into acting do you think through her well I think um, I think it was I think these things are in the genes maybe um but or maybe it's just because I lived in a world where my um my grandmother who I lived with in London when I went to drama school was uh an opera singer my great aunt had been an actress. My great uncle was head of, well, chief lighting designer at the Royal Opera House. And so I grew up in this whole artistic world on my mother's side. My my father was another story. He was actually a stage door Johnny. Um, and he was, he was, a, he was a businessman, but yes. And so my, my mother then became an actress and uh, she was, something that they used to call a soubrette, which meant that she was in musicals and she could sing and dance. And, you know, she was um, out there in the sort of mid-50s to mid-60s. Uh, and she did a lot of West End stuff, things like, you know, the Desert Song and Hit the Deck. I don't know whether you've ever heard of these, but... Um, I know yeah. I know the Desert Song. I don't know Hit the Deck. Was that a musical? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then she had, uh, she got her sort of big break in a play, musical play called The World of Paul Slicky, which was actually written by John Osborne. And it was, put it like this, it was ahead of its time. And it was, you know, Palace Theatre, you know, on Cambridge Circus in London. You know, massive deal. John Osborne at the time in the 60s, was just huge. as you know yeah. huge yeah, absolutely um and my mother was playing a debutante in this production and it was very very out there and uh basically things were thrown from the audience and they were booed off stage and i think that the show lasted I think 10 days, two weeks before it oh came off. Oh, my goodness. What an experience to live through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's but it's famous for being this, you know, before its time moment and the audience reacting like well, they did Osborne to Osborne was kind of ahead of his time, wasn't he? And he yeah. was, um, you know, I, I think a lot of his things were kind of to shock and to jiggle things up a bit. Exactly. But how did um, how did she feel going through that experience? Was she all right? Well, I think she was obviously they were all in it together. Yeah. And they they all knew that it was going to put shockwaves through yeah. um London theatre land. But I yes, I think, you know, she is something that she has never forgotten and I have to say, talks about quite a lot. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I think to actually be in the cast, I think, you know, you know about this, when you're with a group of people um, and 
you become close so so quickly. You become don't you? you become a family actually. Uh, you do. You, you're all in it together. And as you know, you nobody knows until you open what the critics are going to say. Those wonderful people, the critics, <laughs> or what the audiences are going to react to. You know, I I haven't done that many, but um, the few I have done, thank goodness, touch would have been. Okay. Just huge successes, Twiggy. Yeah. Well, oh, the Broadway one was the big, the biggie, and that was amazing because that was an unbelievable journey. You know, we opened we in Boston, and then the director was sacked, and then they brought in new people, which was wonderful because it was Mike Nichols who's a, who was a genius. Oh God, yes, well, he's wonderful. But it was like learning two different plays because we had a new writer, and I can remember we were still performing in Boston, having things written up and down my arm because we were performing one show at night and learning a new show. The, I mean, oh. it was madness. But, you know, it worked out. We opened and we were a big hit and we ran for nearly two years. But it is a journey and you do become a family and you're so close because you're all in it together. So I, I can imagine what that must have been like for your mum. It must have been horrid, actually. But you, you do have each other, which is fabulous. You do. And, uh, I mean, I, it's interesting when you, because you obviously were with your cast for two years. Yeah. Um, and I did a West End play, which was very odd for me because I'd been a sort of jobbing actress since um, since someone walked into this ballet class because, actually, originally I wanted, I, I was that little girl who wanted to be a ballerina, which could partly do be to do with the fact that obviously my because my um opera was such a big thing, ballet was such a big thing, and I was allowed into dress rehearsals at the Royal Opera House. And all I wanted to do was was be Margot Fontaine. Um I was obsessed with ballet. And so I went to a sort of proper school when in my teens to study in London, live with my grandmother, and this director came into this class from, well, I don't know where he was from at the time, from the BBC, and sort of did the sort of you, 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 and you. And then there was a notice up on the board, you know, could could we all, you know, meet with this woman who did that kind of thing at the school? And uh, next thing I knew, I was in a six-part TV series called The Story of the Treasure Seekers, which was based on a book called E. Nesbitt. And after that, I just sort of never looked back and I'd hurt my knee anyway and I realised that I didn't have the physical, anatomical strength um, <laughs> to to sustain a long-term dance career. I mean, I was to- mm. and I was told that. And so it sort of followed on that I then went into acting. But when I was in this West End show, it was really interesting because you actually had a routine, which I'd never had before. You know, you you knew that you actually had the days to yourself, you know, and then obviously twice a week you had matinees, but then you'd go into the theatre at half past five and everybody would be there and then you'd obviously normally end up going out somewhere afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so you lived in that whole routine for, you know, X number of, well, for me, it was, I think, 18 months. And um, yes, it was... quite nice, actually. I quite like that, you see. Um, yeah. My daughter, that when I was doing the Broadway thing, it meant you're in one place with your ch- child or children. Yeah. So they they can go to... It's not like if you're filming or doing a TV and you're all over the place. And I quite like that setup. And you'd have most of the day, because Carly was like four and five. So she was at, you know, a nursery and then a... Um, reception class but it meant I was around apart from matinee days and and then on weekends she'd often come in with me on the matinees and I never saw her because she was always downstairs with the dancing girls collecting sequins and feathers (laughs) yeah and everybody keeping her happy and oh and they all loved her of course you know so it was you know so it's actually quite a nice if you are a mum it's quite a nice because you are, you know, you are settled. You have a routine. Um, yeah. So and, did uh, did you always, did you write as a kid or, I mean, where yes, did that yeah, talent did. come from? Because your I, stories are so brilliant. I love them so much. Well, I, I did write as a child. I wrote a lot. I wrote all the time. 
and I, you know, I it's a question actually I'm asked quite a lot, and I I look back and I I actually start to think about it, and yes, I did write stories, and I was always in my imagination, and I think the thing for me was that. At the time, the whole ballet thing was the the big dream. So the fact that I actually loved writing and, you know, was, you know, very good at it at that moment in time for a sort of, you know, for a young child. And, you know, I'd I'd win the English prize sort of regularly, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think I ever really thought about it. But, But I always thought about the stories in my head and I also was you know just a complete avid reader I mean I just read everything and anything that I could get my hands on I and I was you know in those days I just went to the library every Saturday it was you know I got on the bus and went to my local library and swapped over the books and I, I could read sort of five books in in a week I read something when I was doing my research about your life and everything and it really made me laugh because I read a little thing that you said when you were little you used to come home and be and dress up in your I think your mum's clothes and be a princess (laughs) and you'd have a story in your head which would go on for weeks yeah and I can remember my no I didn't do that well I no I didn't do that I used to dress up but but my daughter used to do that. She'd become a character. She'd come home from school when she was yeah. about eight and she'd dress up in, it would either be a princess or then she got into animation and she'd be an animated character and she'd come and have dinner with us and she'd be that character and we had to call her that. <laughs> like, and when I read that, it really made me laugh because I, I thought... I'd, I'd love to meet your daughter. I wonder how many people, because I've I've always not really spoken about it because it sounds a bit bananas but um no it's not it's one and, and I can see it completely and and, and you know and you, that must have been the beginnings of where you get these amazing stories it was because... and I I mean I just love you know I mean if I had the choice of reality and living in my imagination I absolutely live in my imagination and I, I, I also think that one of the things that probably pushed me in the end to start writing was because, well, A, I got something that it would now be called Epstein Barr, this really, really bad, bad version of glandular fever. Most people just sort of get it at university and, you know, they get over it. But sadly, I got it very, very badly. And so I wasn't able to get out there and go for auditions. I but it's I, very debilitating, isn't it? Completely. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, you know, and still when they test my blood, it's, it's still there. And I've always sort of been prone to sort of virusy things. Anyway, I, I do think that being an actress, I well, I always felt that I just had no control. I was always sitting there waiting for that phone to ring you know, from my agent to tell me that I was allowed to go to an audition for a job. Um, And then obviously, there'd be those couple of days where you go into a complete panic, hot sweat, you know, often I had to, because I did musicals as well. So often I'd have to, you know, sing as well, you know, and then you after that, you, you do your audition, and it's never as good as you hoped it was going to be. And uh, you'd come back and then you'd sit and wait for the phone to ring again. Oh, and yeah. um, No control I think, whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the reason why I ended up when I was sick in bed saying, right, you know, I've had this story in my head forever. I'm actually going to write it down. And I wrote it down longhand. And, um, and I also think that I'd had, you know, by that time, a lot of scripts and the words that I would be asked to say or a particular scene and you'd read it and you'd think, I'm not sure I'd do it like that, you know. When you started writing, it must have helped you, I'm sure, be, being oh, an actress. Because as you say, of reading lots of scripts and, and often you read scripts and think that you wouldn't, as you say, you wouldn't say it yeah. like that. It should no, be this. Um, I mean, I'm not a writer at all, but 
but I do know from re- you know you, you know a good script from a bad one, don't you? Often you get a script and you think, oh, this you is do. really well written. You do, and sometimes you have to do that bad script because otherwise your kids won't get fed. But um, but yes, I mean you <laughs> do know. True. I mean I don't know whether you uh, know that I do not use a computer to uh, write the books to write the stories. I, I read somewhere that you dictate. You yeah, go for a I walk do. and you dictate. That's brilliant. So in a way, Twiggy, you could say that I'm still acting because, Absolutely. you know, I... So then I, you have it on your dictaphone and yeah. is it called a dictaphone, yeah? It is. It's called Dick. Me and Dick. <laughs> me and Dick spend a lot of lot of time together, I can tell you. <laughs> is your husband okay about that? Uh, he's, he's, well, he's, you know, he's he's used to the three of us in the relationship, Matt. Um, but, but Dick is... Dick is very old and um, he really, really needs replacing. And, uh, you know, he's gone a bit on the tape. He's not quite sort of there. And I just, I can't. So then you have it transposed to your computer or or to Yeah, I then, I send it down the line because I'm always away when I start the book. um, Because I'm in the place where I set the story because I have to go there and you know, just get the feel, et cetera, et cetera, and actually live there um, for as long as I possibly can. And so, yes, that that gets transposed by my long-suffering assistant and um, who can't, you know, sometimes understand what the hell I'm saying, um, I'm sure. And she also has to put up with all the accents as well. Um, And um, yeah, and then I actually don't look at all at what I have said, because I'm telling a story, I'm ta- I'm storytelling, until I have got to the last word. And then I will get it printed up and there will be this pile of literally 800, 900 pages of vomit um, <laughs> from my mouth, uh, which I then take and it's a completely separate process and it's completely technical and that's the point at which I start editing because and I mean it works for me I I know everyone thinks I'm sort of utterly bananas in the way that I do it but you know that's interesting because I feel when I read your book because I I mean I'm obsessed with the seven sisters but I've you know I love a lot of your other books that are nothing to do with that I think that's what I found first I think it was the hothouse flower I found first. Well, that was the first. That was the first bit that I dictated, and I, I have to say that when I first started, sort of trying to speak the words, I felt so stupid. And of course, all the kids think it's ridiculous. The mummy walks around, you know, speaking to herself all day. Um, but I think that's it's interesting you saying that because I think that's why they flow so well. And the, the and the dialogue, you know, sometimes you read a book and you think, oh, it's a good story, but the dialogue's a bit stilted. And it's interesting because you're speaking it because your dialogue flows so brilliantly, I think. And the oh, characters come across as really real. Well, in the hothouse flower, I remember I was at some point in it and I burst into tears in bed and Lee, my husband said what on earth's the matter and I thought oh my god I've just read a really sad bit I had to put the book down for a bit <laughs> well, it's really interesting Twiggy because honestly I'm not joking I I get so emotionally involved with the sisters um, and which because obviously they're what I'm writing about at the moment and whichever set of characters it is and I don't have any plot sorted out so I don't I get you know every year I get these books that you know are going to be the sort of um that my assistant buys me and they're all sort of the same but different colors and they're all sort of lined and uh very nice and you know it's the plot book for the new book and all it's got in it by the end of it is shopping lists because I don't <laughs> plot. I just don't plot. That's and pretty- so when something happens to one of the sisters or, you know, one of the other characters, I am totally emotionally involved. So I, I am permanently crying over, <laughs> you know, the various scenarios so that I have you in the books. So in The Seven Sisters, you didn't set that out as a, you know, 
this is going to be this book. I mean, did you have the character for each book or well, did I, one character lead to another or? It was, it was very much a moment um, because I was actually, why are moments that uh, are meant to be, you know, amazing and you're standing in a ball gown on the steps of the castle and in fact, I wasn't, I was standing in an apron on my back doorstep in Norfolk um, at Christmas trying to decide what, because it was between Christmas and New Year, what I was going to cook for, you know, the entire family who was still there. And you know how everybody's very sort of tired and, you know, quite bad temper between <laughs> Christmas and New Year. <laughs> and the turkey is just sort of not enough. And I was looking up at the stars and I've always been obsessed anyway with astronomy and astrology. And I saw the Seven Sisters uh, and they were very, very low because they come up in uh, November in the Northern Hemisphere. And they were twinkling at me. And at the time, I was trying to decide what I was going to write next because I'd written all these standalones. But what I wanted to do was to write something that would really challenge me as a writer. Do you know what I mean? Because I am so involved in the stories, it's not about... You know, it's just a complete passion for me. I just suddenly had this bingo moment where I thought, I want to write about the Seven Sisters of the Pleiades and take all their stories, you know, their, their mythology from all across the world and use it for seven modern day women. I was so excited. I sort of ran back into the house and, you know, I mean, it was literally immediately, it was almost as though it was already there inside me. I can't explain because it just came together so fast. I knew that I wanted to use anagrams for all the characters and that uh, there would be an underlying story running through it that nobody knew, but there were various clues given. So the underlying story was there, not in detail, but I knew the beginning and I knew the end. Oh, you did know the end. Yeah, I did. Mm. I, I knew the end then. Wow. But that sort of wasn't anything to do particularly with the individual sisters, okay. if you see what I mean, because it's the mm -hmm. overarching story yeah. okay. that um, is the big mystery um, that will be revealed very soon. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, so I had that. But each sister book, I just worked exactly the same way as I always have, e.g. I just began. And sometimes I'm actually quite frightened because I really don't know where I'm going. I don't know where this sister is going to take me. But I think what I have learned to do is let the character, well, to trust the characters, if you do, see what I mean. Do you let the character, you know, obviously... I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't read these books and please read these books. They're fabulous. But when you are going to do a new sister, say the Storm sister and Ali, yeah. the, the lead girl, do you know the country she's going to end up going to? Or uh, Yeah, I did. I mean, I th that was the other thing that I knew. I wanted to make it... I wanted to make the whole Seven Sisters series sort of, you know, multinational, multiracial, um, because all the myths and legends are literally across the world. I mean, you know, the sisters are goddesses, for example, in, in Aboriginal culture. You know, they're in Mayan legend. Um, so it's not just the Greek myths. So, so this whole thing was going to be the sort of worldwide... Um, sort of, uh, I, I mean, on all my publishers, I have to say, Twiggy thought I was completely bonkers when I sat there, you know, we after I'd had this idea and told them what I wanted to do. So, yes, I did know, I knew because I'd just been to Brazil and I'd seen Christ the Redeemer, which is, as you know, the sort of, uh, if you like, the sort of the cultural, the monument in. Um, in the Seven Sisters, in the first book, 
that the story wraps itself around. And I just, I'd fallen in love with Brazil. I'd fallen in love with the people there. I just loved the country. And I thought nobody, well, I've never read a book, certainly not a fiction book, based in Brazil. And I want Mm. to, you know, write about this incredible culture that nobody really in, you know, in our society yeah. knows about but, but i think you know as i say i'm i'm up to the the, the sun sister the, the the last one before the last book and every time i pick up a new one i i kind of eat them out because i, I don't want them to end Aww. i wish there was 25 sisters but there's not but um but what's lovely is you know as well as meeting this new person that you're gonna go on the journey with you're you are going to visit another part of the world and and your research is so brilliant um i mean i love the pearl sister with Cece, not you know going back to australia and her her, her roots are from that part of the world and the aboriginal she, she and it's just was... so lovely because i i you learn so much as well as getting very involved with the characters and and loving the the story well i i sort of don't want to um <sighs> I always, I mean, I loved history. I mean, I was a real nerd at school. So, um, you know, I I was museum girl at weekends. And I know I sound sad, but I was when I went to London. And I always felt that, um, you know, history shouldn't be just a nonfiction book full of dates. It should be told through the eyes of, you know, people who can bring it alive. and, And then... You know, you learn stuff by default almost because you're involved in the character's life. And therefore, the fact that your sister might be involved in, you know, the the Spanish Civil War, for example, um, even though it's not, you know, it isn't a historical nonfiction book. You know, the facts are, as far as I can possibly get them, you know, absolutely accurate um, and so you you learn about you know that time in Spain, um, yeah, just because you are involved in that sister's life. And um, but you know, you know, I also read that you you go to these places to do your research. I mean, how can you write? I mean, haven't you written these six or seven now in the last what six years? Yeah. I have. I mean, that's well, unbelievable. Because presumably, you go to Brazil, you go to Norway, you go yeah. to Australia to yeah. research. So, how long? How long do you spend in a place to research? It depends, actually. I was in Brazil for quite a long time because it was such, uh, if you like, I, this sounds wrong in a way, but it was an alien culture. It was a culture that I needed to really, mm. you know, spend time in the country to understand. And I, I and I also have discovered, you know, during my sort of lifetime of writing all these books, that it's never actually going to museums or reading nonfiction books that gives me my story. It's actually the people who live in the country. Um, and it was, for example, that, um, you know, the Seven Sisters, the, the, the sort of key to the whole story came when I was invited out to a a supper party in Rio by some friends I'd made. And I heard them at the table and they were fighting about whether, you know, Rio or Sao Paulo was, you know, the superior um, sort of, if you like, capital. Yeah. (laughs) And and I realised that there was an awful lot of tension. And so I asked them to explain it to me. And that became a massive part of the Seven Sisters story. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have been at that party in Brazil. And it's the same with every single book that I've written. Um, I mean, obviously this year, or in fact last year, I just, again, it was serendipitous because I'd actually been to New Zealand, which is where part of the book is set just before the world closed down because otherwise I wouldn't, obviously I would never have been able to get there and I wouldn't have been able to have done my research. Uh, And then I had always known that book seven was going to be 
set partly in Ireland. And so what was brilliant about it was that there I was in Ireland in lockdown. And even though I couldn't travel to go and see anyone, my entire local community, you know, through a series of sort of phone calls, all came together to actually help me with the answers that I needed. And, you know, because it's, it's often, you know, I mean, all I can say is, uh, whoever is out there listening to this, you know, listen to your your granny or your grandpa's or mm. your great granny or your great grandpa's stories because that mm. is where you learn stuff. And um, I know when you're you're young, you don't want to listen, but you know, just take that time to ask them, you know, what their life was like because you know we need that feedback from them because in Ireland um, at the time that I write about which is exactly a hundred years ago nothing was really written down and so I say they're great storytellers in Ireland great oh they are they are oh we are we were just watching a, a friend of mine Michael Woods who's the historian he he did a wonderful series about the history of China. I don't know whether you ever watched it. Brilliant. No, I didn't. But I and it's loved been it. rerunning on PBS, so I we've been rewatching it. But there's these lovely sequences. There are places they go. They can go. I, I can't. Rem- I th- it might be in Shanghai or Beijing. I can't remember where people go into like a cafe place, and they have presumably actors who come out and tell and they tell them ancient sto- Chinese stories. And they're at a podium and they're not reading it. They they obviously learn these stories. And I just thought, what a brilliant idea that I, I've never I've never seen that in any other culture. Maybe it does exist. And it's well, like it's, you were yeah, saying about Irish. listening to your ancestors. And yeah, absolutely. It's a lovely idea, isn't um, it? So I'm always looking for, you know, a uh, a granny or a grandpa or an older person to tell me the detail because... You know, it's not the sort of uh, the, the big facts about, you know, the day that this war began or ended. It's actually, you know, when you're talking about 100 years ago in a particular country, you know, when they woke up, you know, where did they uh, get their water from? What did they have for breakfast? You know, how would they actually, what would they be wearing? What would they get to uh, work on if they had to go to work? Would it be pony and cart? Would it be horse? Would it be car in that particular era? And so even just getting through a day in the stories is very uh, time-consuming research-wise because you can get the big picture about, you know, a, uh, a moment in time from the history books. But what you can't do is get that tiny, minute detail. And I mean, there will always be, what I've learned is that, you know, now the books are sort of sold worldwide, there will always be someone who spots a mistake if you make one. Um, and it can be the tiniest little thing. And uh, so I'm, I am absolutely paranoid about trying to get as much right as I possibly can. And, uh, you know, I, I think for the most part I I do it, but um, I'm sure that uh, anyone listening who has found something wrong, please don't email me. <laughs> <laughs> so please don't email Get over it. Get over it. Exactly. <laughs> now, is it true that you've sold... Over 30 million copies of the seven. Is that true? That's unbelievable. Um, uh, apparently. I mean, amazing. Yes. Well, it's not amazing because they're bloody brilliant. But how many languages have they been written in? Uh, I think 40. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when you talk about this, Twiggy, it's it's like it applies to someone else, if that makes yeah, sense. I understand. Um, you know, they, they, because all I do, my life hasn't changed at all. Um, all I do is I deal with my kids, you know, I'm at home, I'm writing. And so that all that stuff, if you like, the success stuff is all over the wall, because I think, and I, I literally see the wall in my imagination, you know, it is and it's green, it's a bit very, very tall green hedge. 
And um, I just, and over that wall is all that stuff because I think I, I would actually, maybe if I actually started thinking about how many people are reading the books, I might become paralyzed. And yeah, so I just I never want that to happen. And so I don't yeah. really engage with that side of it. And I don't really do, well, I've not done any sort of literary lunch, dinner stuff. Um, I just keep myself very quiet and, you know, spend time with my kids and my husband. And um, yeah, so my life literally hasn't changed since it all happened. But, you know, I'm happy because I actually love writing and the fact that I've actually been... Well, it, it certainly beams out from every page that you do because they're glorious books and i presume because of what you do lockdown probably didn't affect you as much as lots of people because no it didn't i mean i know obviously from it's, home and yeah it was and it's it a was, pretty um you know lonely not lonely job but a kind of solitary, solitary. job isn't yeah. it mm. well it is and i'm used to being you know, the sort of hermit. Um, mm. and, and when I am writing, I actually have to leave the kids behind and just go and be by myself because I just, I need that when I'm actually writing the story. Um, and in fact, obviously during lockdown, they all flew home to mummy and daddy. Uh, and so my biggest problem was the fact they were all here plus, you know, animals and partners as well. And um, I couldn't get any piece to write. So uh, when uh, I want to call them the sanctions, the restrictions lifted, I went to Ireland. Yes, I managed to get the book written. Yeah, I did. But no, it didn't affect me because it is my life. I mean, you know, lockdown in a way is the life I live. Yeah, and so everyone's going to want to know, when when can they get their hands on... The last book. Uh, well, um, <laughs> it's coming out on the twenty seventh of May, which is three days time. Yeah, Twiggy, so exciting! I'm very excited. But you, you <laughs> might or might not have heard about the announcement that I made three weeks ago or so. Okay, what's that? Well, I had to decide halfway through the missing sister that, in fact, unless I wanted it to be War and Peace, this book, um, or possibly longer, um, that I was actually going to have to write, if you like, a part two to The Missing Sister. So, in fact, there is a book eight. So this is not... The Missing Sister is the penultimate book, and it is not... The final book. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, really you know, exciting. I'm embarrassed about it because <laughs> I don't like this idea of people thinking that I'm just trying to extend and extend and extend. But I couldn't put, I couldn't do justice to. Listen, I promise you, your fans will be ecstatic as this one is. That's brilliant. I really hope <laughs> so. I really hope so. But I well, just it will couldn't. be. Trust me, okay. I promise you. Thank you. I wasn't <laughs> trying it on or anything. I just couldn't make, I couldn't do justice to what I, the stories I needed to tell in one book. That's so, brilliant. Uh, Absolutely the, brilliant. The one after The Missing Sister is called Atlas, The Story of Parsalt. Oh, brilliant. I was going to ask you about, did, I've also read somewhere that you kind of base Parsalt on your dad. Is that true? Yeah, he was my my dad was uh, certainly an elusive figure when I was younger. Um, he travelled for work, um, and actually, if you plotted where he went, he followed trouble around. But this is only now looking back as a, a oh, sort okay. of grown up. But um, yes, he was obviously in Ireland when everything was happening, and then he went off to to Russia and then he went to the Middle East and he went to the Far East, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, he would always bring me back when I was younger um, because he'd be away for sort of weeks and weeks at a time, uh, something from the country that uh, he'd been to and sit me on his knee and he'd tell me stories and um, about the country and 
yeah, he, uh, for example, he went to Norway, which is possibly why Norway is, you know, in the Seven Sisters series. Uh-huh. And he he just said to me, it's one of the most beautiful countries that I've ever been to. And he gave me a long playing record. I was about four at the time of the Pier Gint suite, which, as you know, is part of yeah. Ali's story in Ali's the Storm story, Sister. Absolutely. And, of course, being, you know, so obsessed with ballet, so etc. Probably I was, your dad was part of the inspiration oh totally he was yeah that's brilliant he was a very wise man and you know very yes i mean very parceled i mean he was and it took it took me i can't wait to find out about oh god listen i could go on talking to you for the next six hours and now we've met virtually i hope we can meet in person when we're all allowed to well that would be wonderful that would be lovely Listen, Lucinda, this has been absolutely thrilling for me to meet you. And I'll be back with um, Electra in the Sun Sister tonight because that's what I'm reading and loving it. Well, enjoy her and just thank you so much for having me on. Time has flown and it's been a total pleasure. It really has, Twiggy. And, you know, I've met one of my heroines, I mean, virtually. So, (laughs) So thank you for letting me. You're welcome. Bye. Oh, what a lovely lady. Oh, I really enjoyed that. It's very thrilling to me to meet Lucinda because I'm such a big fan. I feel like I know her through her books, um, but it was lovely to really meet her. And um, hopefully I can meet up with her in person at some point. And the other bit of news that uh, we didn't actually cover because we ran out of time is that um, The Seven Sisters is going to be turned into a TV series down the line which is um, very exciting I think that's kind of all happening now so that's a little bit of news and um, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did and I hope you're having a lovely day and um, we can now get out and do lots more things which is very exciting anyway stay safe see you soon bye if this is your first time listening to tea with twiggy please do remember to tell your friends You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production.